Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 715 of the podcast and it is Thursday the 21st of September 2023 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Jeremy Bassetti, who's been on the show before as a travel writer. And today we're talking about how you can create a high quality photo book and publish it on Kickstarter. And also, how do you market such a beautiful high value product? So Jeremy talks about his photo book project, Hill of the Skull, and that is coming up in the interview section. So first up in publishing and book marketing things, the Alliance of Independent Authors at the selfpublishingadvice.org blog has an article on slow release book strategies, which is great because, of course, the indie author community is often obsessed with rapid release. And that model doesn't suit many of us, including myself. The benefits of slow release include avoiding burnout, spending more time on each book with more time to do marketing and engaging readers and more of the things that we would normally do around launch. Because although some people say the the best marketing for a book is another book, sometimes the best marketing for a book is to spend more time marketing it. (laughs) And I'm really learning that with this whole Kickstarter process. You really have to do a lot of marketing for a two week uh, launch. The challenges of slow release include the need for readers' patience, because we all know as readers that the day a book is launched by an author we like, we read it that day, and then we have to wait however long it is for the next one. And readers may forget about us or lose interest, which is why building an email list is so important. So tips for slow release include planning ahead and focusing on the quality of the product, not just the quality of the text. And I know the word quality is difficult for many people and it used to be used in a derogatory way around people who write fast or people who self-publish. But now um, I certainly think that the quality of the printed product is something that we're focusing on a lot more. And I'll definitely be the first to say that even though our print-on-demand paperbacks are absolutely fine for most things. They couldn't be called incredibly high-quality products. And this is what uh, Jeremy and I are talking about today. And also why the Kickstarter crowdfunding model is so good for this kind of release strategy. You spend more time on the quality of the of the physical product as well as the words. Also, try to be consistent. So Even if you do one book a year, maybe try and uh, put it out at the same time every year. Now, there are some interviews on this uh, article with authors like Ros Morris, who's been on this show many times. Ros says, my most recent novel took seven years, though I published three other books in that time as well. The novel before that took only two years. It's a long game, but it's right for me. I wanted to become a writer because I was inspired by books that were worthwhile and beautiful and original and significant. And that's what I want to leave in the world. 
This publishing schedule is not expected to produce a full-time living, so I do editing and other writing as well, and the variety suits me. And that's exactly right. Um, I, obviously, I have multiple streams of income as well, and doing... It, it, this is what's so great about being independent. You can do so many different business models. And this is not to say that rapid release is bad or writing fast is bad. Not at all. It's completely great and wonderful for a certain number of people. But um, yeah, for those of us who are not that type of person, which I am not, uh, the slow release strategy works too. And also Russell Nolte's on the uh, article saying, I have not had that much success launching slowly through retailers. So he means Amazon, Apple, Kobo, etc. I have found a lot of success at conventions, though, also through subscriptions, crowdfunding, landing pages, but not retailers. Almost all my sales are direct to readers. Now, Russell is an expert on Kickstarter and along with Monica Lionel helps authors sell direct. And I hope to have him on the show at some point for their next campaign, because obviously this is a a really big um, trend for independent authors right now. So I'll link to that in the show notes, but it's at selfpublishingadvice.org. And then just a AI update. So much going on right now. Lots and lots of updates, which I'm not going to talk about all the different things that happen every week. But I am going to share a few things this week. Seth Godin did a post on how he is using ChatGPT. Seth is incredibly influential in the nonfiction space, the marketing space, um, business space. And he says, AI is a mystery. To many, it's a threat. It turns out that understanding a mystery not only makes it feel less like a threat, it gives us the confidence to make it into something better. I use ChatGPT4 just about every day, and I'm often surprised at how frequently it surprises me, good and bad. There's really no good reason not to play with it. Put it to work and get smart about what's happening. And he says, here's an interesting use case. If you're writing for clarity, not style, take your work, paste it into the AI and ask it to rewrite it to make it more clear or journalistic. It's pretty astonishing. And I like this because this is exactly what uh, Jonathan and many people at his job are using it for is this rewriting. So, for example, say you (laughs) and a lot of them are using it in different ways. So say you want to uh, tell some people who work for you, so going sort of down the chain, you need to encourage them to do a certain thing, but you don't want to sound too strict. Uh, and maybe they're of a generation where the sort of hierarchy doesn't work so well. So you can say what you want and then say, rewrite this to be more friendly. And then maybe you're going up the chain and you want to say something to your manager, but you don't want to be offensive. You can say, rewrite this to be, I don't know, um, more respectful or whatever. And uh, one of the superpowers is if English is not your first language or if you're just not great with your grammar and style, you can paste your attempt in and then say, rewrite this in appropriate business English or something like this. And Jonathan says one of his team who is um, a different European nationality has just, he's doing so much better. Now he has this ability to reword because he has all the, he has all the words in his own language. He just doesn't have it all in English, but this means he can communicate it. So the, the way Seth talks about this is exactly right. And 
a really clear business case, uh, business use case for, for many people. Uh, Seth also goes into how he's using custom instructions. And this is another reason I wanted to mention this, because if you are on the ChatGPT4, which is the paid version of ChatGPT, you can now put in custom instructions and it makes a huge difference to how the output works. He also gives examples. So links to that in the show notes or it's at uh, seths.blog. And uh, he finishes up by saying, it's still going to make stupid mistakes, confuse us, hallucinate and have bad taste. But it also does something quite useful on a regular basis. Also, in terms of something quite useful, I wanted to mention one of the first official studies on the impact of AI uh, on work, reported by Ethan Mollick, who's a professor who shares a lot of great stuff about AI at oneusefulthing.org, links in the show notes. The, um, the Basically, they did a study involving a team of social scientists working with the Boston Consulting Group, which is a big consulting firm, and they turned their offices into the largest pre-registered experiment on the future of professional work. Now, it's a really interesting study to read, um, but the highlights are that consultants using AI finished over 12% more tasks on average, completed tasks 25% more quickly and produced 40% higher quality results than those without. So essentially, people who use AI are producing more and better work than those without AI. And that kind of comes back to what Seth was saying there. It can really help you in different ways. And although there have been many updates to many tools this week, the big one is probably that OpenAI have released DALL-E 3 for images, and it looks like a big step change. It uses much more natural language, and you can use ChatGPT as a front end, so you can essentially talk to it in normal English. You don't need to do this prompt engineering that you do on mid-journey with the sort of different codes for things, um, but just be more conversational about what you want. They've got a really great video which shows a sunflower hedgehog idea for like a, a kid's thing in lots of different poses and settings. So it has consistent characters, which many of us are quite excited about. It also is designed to decline requests that ask for the style of a living artist. And this is what I've always said. Do not use artist names, author names or brand names in your prompts. Uh, you don't need to. And now it won't let you. And artists can also opt out so they are not used in the reference material. And one of the biggest things is it will generate text within the image. So super interesting in terms of book cover design, because even what, three weeks ago when uh, I had the interview with Damon around book cover design, he, you know, we, what I was saying maybe next year, and he was saying even further out in terms of when AI could put text on, you know, viable text on an image. But this looks like it. <laughs> and it will be available in October for ChatGPT Plus, which is the paid version, or Enterprise, which is the one in businesses. So yeah, and then it also says clearly on the page, the images are yours to use. You don't need permission to reprint, sell, or merchandise them. And uh, I'll link in the show notes to some examples of the images, which also include text. Really interesting times. And as people keep sending me this, I'll just mention it. Yes, more authors, including George R. R. Martin, are suing OpenAI. Not a surprise, lots of individuals and groups of creators are suing OpenAI. But once again, you have to ask why none of the big publishing houses are suing. 
not going to go into that. You just have to think about it in terms of what copyright really is, what fair use is, um, what derivative works are, all of this. If you actually look at that and you actually look at how these um, programs work, yeah, uh, that's why, basically. But there will be changes to copyright law for sure. I imagine that is coming, but it's going to take a really long time. And this tech is not going back in the box. Very interesting times. I am really looking forward to trying Dolly 3, that is for sure. So in personal news, I finished the sales description for writing The Shadow. So I thought I would read it for you. We all long to write boldly, without filters or fear. To spin stories that capture the messy beauty of what it means to be human. Tales that lay bare the truth of living, darkness and all. But something holds us back. Whispers of, who do you think you are? And... You don't have permission to write that. Our own self-censorship and the judgment of others keep us from writing freely and sometimes from living fully. But all great art taps into darkness and your most compelling work emerges when you embrace your full humanity, both light and shadow. In Writing the Shadow, I'll guide you on an intimate journey to explore the darkness and discover the gold lying hidden in its depths gold that may be the source of your best creative work in the years ahead. The shadow is calling. It's time to turn your inner darkness into words. So if that sounds interesting, you can sign up to be notified of the launch at thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book. And yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I also got my first blurb from Stephen Pressfield, which means a lot to me. Steve's work has uh, been important in my own career. He's the author of The War of Art, Turning Pro, many other books for authors, as well as novels and screenplays. He's been on this show a couple of times. Steve says, I love everything Joanna Penn does, but writing the shadow is the icing on the cake. Ms. Penn has found the gold within the darkness and has lit a candle to show us the way. My mantra and hers, forever young. And that's a bit of a, a, a joke. It's, uh, the shadow is based on Jungian psychology. So forever young spelt J-U-N-G because <laughs> Steve uses young in his own work. So I was really pleased about that. So I also got the gorgeous prototype copy of Writing the Shadow, the hardback, and I put a video up on Instagram and Facebook at JF Pen Author. If you want to see it with the gold foil and the ribbon reflecting the light, well, the gold foil reflecting the light, um, it looks lovely. And yeah, we, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but yes, we made it with the book at sort of 95% pre-proofreading um, as I needed to get the costings and to get a copy for the marketing photos. But now I've got the final proofreading done. So I've reformatted, resent back to Jane, my designer. So yeah, I'm in that finishing energy. You know, we talk about this different types of energy in the creative process. And this really is finishing energy. Um, but as well as the special hardback, and once again, that gold foil uh, hardback version will only be available in the Kickstarter. Um, but there will also be a cheaper paperback 
and a large print, an ebook, an audiobook, and a spiral bound workbook. There'll be bundles, also my shadow writing sessions and consulting, both of which will um, be constrained in the number of people who can buy those. Um, they are limited rewards. So if you want uh, any of any of these things, I would really appreciate you signing up the creativepen.com forward slash shadow book. And that's launching 9th of October. So we're almost there. Uh, yep. Big things. And in, in terms of other Kickstarters, I mean, we'll be talking about Jeremy Bassetti's later on, but also a friend of mine, Jacqueline Hollows, has a Kickstarter for Wing of an Angel, which is her memoir of working in the prison system. And she says, for those who want the self-belief that transformation is possible... And yeah, I think many of us are interested in that. Um, So yeah, I'll link to that in the show notes or you can just search Wing of an Angel on Kickstarter uh, and you'll find that. So as this goes out, I'm having a much needed break. We are in the Norwegian fjords as this goes out, uh, having some active relaxation somewhere new. I will put pictures on Instagram and Facebook at jfpenauthor if you want to have a look. So thanks for your emails and comments. At ME on YouTube said, this was such an inspiring episode on Joanne's episode on audio drama. Me and my partner made an audio drama in podcast form last year called Beyond the Gates. I recognise so many of the struggles mentioned here, but also the joys. I think this helped me put into words what I love about audio drama as a medium, and I only truly discovered it recently. I'm definitely checking out Everyone's Happy. Fantastic. And at J.A. Crawshaw said, uh, thanks for the 12 year episode. Really informative and encouraging. Patience is something I'm struggling with at the moment. And you've helped me put things in perspective a bit, (laughs) which I like a bit in perspective. I totally understand. Even though I preach patience, I don't necessarily have it myself. I would much rather be achieving everything right now. Also, Bradley emailed and said, I've really enjoyed your forays into the AI frontier. I'm a pastor preacher with a highly visual approach and have recently begun using Midjourney to generate unique sermon slide visuals. Brilliant. Um, That to me, uh, I do this for speaking now. Generating unique visuals for your speaking is fantastic. Really gives you a lot more scope than the um, stock photos, which never seem to have exactly what you want. Well, now you can make your own. Bradley says, I just finished listening to your 12 years episode. You always remind me to play the long game, which helps me set more realistic goals for myself. Great. And um, yeah, oh, also sent a picture from a walk in Calgary, Alberta with Pup Wonder, which is lovely. I love to see pictures of where you are listening. You can leave a comment on the podcast show notes at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel, or you can message me on X at the creative pen or email me joanna at the creative pen.com i love to hear from you it makes this more of a conversation so today's show is sponsored by ingram spark so i use ingram spark to print and distribute my self-published print books wide because ingram spark helps me share my story with the world and just recently they now offer an ultra premium color option ideal for books that include images and graphics that would benefit from sharp crisp contrast ultra premium books have offset printing color quality using a toner printer also available 
groundwood paper, a lightweight, a lightweight, thicker paper that is mostly paired with mass market and trade content. So I think that's really interesting. Ingram Spark are doing a lot more with the variants that they can do. But why even consider Ingram Spark? Well, if you only use KDP Print, bookstores, libraries, universities, and print-on-demand sites cannot even consider your book because you need to offer a discount, and also you need to be in their catalogue so they can order. And again. You know, even though we're talking about Kickstarter, that again is not appropriate for distributing on Ingram unless it's the more uh, usual um, levels. Although, as I said, they're doing ultra premium color now. But um, yeah, if you care about getting your books into over forty thousand retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores, and more across a global network of distributors, then um, you want to be on Ingram Spark. It means your book will be available to order, but you will still need to drive demand. But since I've had my books on Ingram Spark, uh, I've basically sold them in libraries, I've had them sold at book fairs, conventions, and in stores. You can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary, and you can choose your discount percentage. You can also bulk order, for example, if you want back of the room copies for live events, or if you work direct with schools or bookstores, or you can also, for example, fulfill some of these Kickstarter levels with Ingram. For example, they have printers in Australia, so you, if you were selling a paperback there, you could do that direct through Ingram, for example. It all works very well, and the best part is Ingram now has free book setup for print or eBooks, and often offers free revisions on your book in the first sixty days. So, what are you waiting for? Share your story with the world and head on over to IngramSpark.com. So, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription, and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons, and I'm ever so grateful to those patrons who've been supporting for years and months. You're all fantastic. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week: Michelle Connolly, Kat Bauer, Blake Atkinson, Christine Catherine Rush, Jocelyn Lindsay, Jennifer Hatters, David Nickel, Shirlene Davis, Andrew. Chuck Anderson and Natalie McLean. So if you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only, uh, which is about 45 minutes of audio where I answer all your questions. You also get the backlist, including videos on Midjourney and how I'm using Claude. Oh, and I should say, if you liked my sales description for writing The Shadow, that was written by Claude. Obviously, I slightly edited it, but it wrote the, the main version love using AI to write sales descriptions. It really is the best. We're also having a meetup at 20 Books Vegas if you are going to be there. And I've been adding other things to the patrons. Now we're on a monthly um, level. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Jeremy Bassetti is a travel writer, editor, teacher, and author of historical fiction, as well as the host of the Travel Writing World podcast. His latest project is The Hill of the Skull, a photo book memoir, launching on Kickstarter. So welcome back to the show, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's good to hear your voice again. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you were on the show talking about the wider aspects of travel writing in September 2021. So we're going to just jump straight into your new project today. So the tagline for The Hill of the Skull is 
A professor visits a sacred mountain in Bolivia and gets pulled into a world of ritual, which sounds super cool. So tell us about the trip that inspired (laughs) the book. Yeah, so in, I guess, the fall of 2022, I went on sabbatical from my work. Uh, from I'm, I'm a professor by day. And on sabbatical, part of the, I guess, part of the mission for me during my sabbatical was to do research on mountain cultures and, you know, how, how people around the world think about mountains. And kind of leading up to that trip, I, I read about from Victoria Preston, somebody who I know you've spoken to before about pilgrimages. I read in her book many years before that something about a, a community and a pilgrimage in the Bolivian Andes in some kind of remote region in a town that many people haven't heard of. So I made it kind of my mission to go to this town during this pilgrimage to to see what was going on there and to do research. The name of the town is called Kiakoyo. And it's not a small town, but it's a town that many people haven't heard of. And there's this kind of incredible festival there every August. And on the surface, it's to celebrate the Virgin Mary, the ascension of Virgin Mary. But when when you see what's going on in terms of the rituals and the ceremonies around this kind of sacred hill, you can see that there's this incredible fusion of native Andean ideas and traditions and rituals blended and fused with this Catholic. So you have this kind of fusion of pagan and Catholic practices happening during this pilgrimage. It's it's quite incredible. So that was the motivation for me to go to this corner of the world. I mean, it sounds very cool, but Bolivia, Mm -hmm. what's your your attraction to South America? Have you traveled there before? Because obviously there are pagan and Catholic rituals all over the world. So why Bolivia? Yeah, well, frankly, I'd never been to South America, and I'd studied about colonial Latin America and Bolivia in grad school. Like, this is, you know, especially around silver, and Bolivia is the place when you're talking about silver during the colonial era. So it's always kind of been on my 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 radar. But this place in particular was just so fascinating to me because, well, frankly, I, I'd never heard of it. And there's this big celebration. There's a lot going on. There was just something that, that was kind of magical that pulled me in that direction. I wanted to go far afield. It was my sabbatical. I wanted to go someplace that would be challenging for me to visit and something that would kind of tie into my larger research interests, which involves looking at the ideas of, of mountains around the world. So this this drew me. Bolivia, of course, is like mountainous region, right? The, the city that I visited, um, Kiyokoyo, by no stretch is a low-lying city. It's like 8,500 feet. I come from Florida, right? It's like <laughs> zero feet, right? It's like sea level. But by Bolivian standards, 8,500 feet, I don't know what that is in meters, maybe 2,500 or something. That's quite low. But for us, I mean, we really feel it. So it's something... Bolivia was a place that was on my radar. It was just some place that I just had to go because mountains are so central and so important to this place. It's a keystone to to the research that I was doing, really. It's interesting you mentioned the silver there because on my books and travel podcast, I had Shafiq Medji. I think you might have had him mm-hmm. on your podcast. Yeah, too. yeah. 
talking about his book about Bolivia. And again, I learned all this stuff, like the silver that people might have, um, well, certainly in their local museum, probably came from Bolivia. Right, <laughs> so, right. I mean, you'd learn an awful lot about places. So I think that's really interesting. But you're not on the travel podcast today. You're on the publishing podcast. So <laughs> let's um, let's get into that. So when you went on this sabbatical and you went to this town, did you intend always to write a book or was or did the book emerge from the trip later well as i mentioned this was part of my research my my larger research goal and my larger research agenda so i always imagined that this research would kind of factor into this work that i'm doing this kind of writing this larger project that i'm working on which i'm a bit hesitant to talk about so it's always been like a part of that work and while I was there, this new story, this new, I guess, quest unfolded while I was there. So the product of this book that I'm releasing today, that I'm crowdfunding and kickstarting, is really just came out of out of being there, right? It, it wasn't something that I had planned on doing. Now, before I went, I, I did a pop-up newsletter that I called 30 Days in the Andes. And this was just like a forcing function for me to think about and to take photos and to 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 work while I was traveling so so I wouldn't confuse Bolivia as like a holiday or something this would force me to to stay rigorous right to stay on schedule to produce work every night to take photographs to remind myself that this is why I'm here to do this kind of work and I had a, like a, a couple of side quests for research while I was there but really the book that emerged was completely different and it was completely un- unexpected completely unexpected and that's probably why it's been so hard and it's taken me over a year to put this book together because it really came out of the thin andean air while i was there sounds fascinating (laughs) (laughs) trying to sell it (laughs) yeah oh no absolutely but the what is interesting i mean you don't obviously you don't have to talk about that bigger work but you have Mm -hmm. this research focus this almost like this great work that you have in mind which is a future project but this photo book came out of being there and i think um i mean my pilgrimage memoir was kind of similar is that i went with one intention and the book well i guess the first book let's call it comes out of something else and can be a bit Mm -hmm. of a surprise. So like you mentioned there, this pop-up newsletter, which I love the idea of, 30 Days in the Andes. So you were taking photos and writing things at the time. So for people who want to do something like this, what are your tips for capturing the experience as it happens? Well, I mean, mean, what I was doing might be a little bit different from kind of just trying to capture the experience for personal use. I was taking photographs and kind of writing things with the intention that possibly I would throw this out into the world in the pop-up newsletter. And that looks, and that that was a lot different from the personal notes and all the personal kind of data that I was collecting. So, I mean, of course I took photos, like that was one of the kind of side quests of this trip, taking photos. You're asking, how do we make sure that we capture everything? Well, you know, every possible way, photos, handwritten notes. I was using my iPhone. So I have this, I don't know if you use the notes app on your iPhone, but if if anybody has iPhones, you have a notes app, but you have this also this app called shortcuts. And you can set this like button on your home screen, this little widget that when you press it, it'll automatically create a new note in your notes app, you know, date it, and it will put all of like the geo coordinates information 
append that to the note and then like open up this dictation dialogue so you can just start talking and it's speech to text and it's incredible how many words that you can get down just by dictating what it is that you're seeing and what it is that you're feeling and what it is that, that you're experiencing so in short i mean i was like a madman taking <laughs> photographs writing things down in a pocketbook taking notes dictating into my phone i was doing whatever it took to to capture things now one of the things that i regret not doing now is I didn't take a lot of video, but I wished I had turned my phone sideways and captured <laughs> more video. But yeah, notes, dictation, photographs, handwritten notes. It was it was it was intense for me. I was going to say it sounds quite busy for yeah, a sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> but it, you know, yeah, sabbatical and rest and all of that. But I mean, this was a type of work that's energizing, right? Not not mm. it's not a type of work that feels like work. You know, it's yeah, I agree with you. And it's interesting, you went with the sort of audio and you what you wish you had done video. Uh, I never do either. And I, I think there's definitely something about speaking and sound that is different from writing because when you're writing, it's much slower than your spoken word. And so you almost think about what you're writing before right. you write it down whereas I guess with speaking it and you weren't even like dictating as such you weren't dictating what you'd written down or you were talking basically right, right. you you were just talking mm -hmm. about what you were feeling so I I do like that I mean presumably you went on your own and you had a room where you could do this alone you weren't like wandering around doing it in public <laughs> no no I was wandering around doing it oh, in you public. Were? <laughs> I mean, yeah so there, there were occasions where I, I whipped out my field notes book and I was taking notes by hand and I would get these sideward glances, people like asking me, mm. like, what are you doing? Like, are you a writer? Like, what are you? It was kind of suspicious. And pretty soon, uh, very quickly, I realized that I didn't want to draw that kind of attention. Not that I was mm. doing anything like I wasn't a spy or anything, right? But I just didn't want to, to call that attention to myself. And I realized very quickly that typing into a phone or speaking into the phone, nobody bats an eye at that. That's what everyone is doing <laughs> everywhere. Um, That's so, true. Yeah. Yeah. Walking around in public, speaking into the phone, typing. In, yeah, that was kind of this strange thing that I was gathering. But with the audio you mentioned, the good thing about audio is it's not just recording the voice that you can later transcribe, but it's also capturing the inflections in, in the voice and the sounds that are going on in the background and the voice and the frustrations in your voice and the high altitude panting and all of this stuff like comes through in the audio that we're not thinking about at the time, but that's kind of key emotional. And I hate to to talk about it in such a like cold way, but that's like emotional data that, that we aren't aware of that we can kind of draw on later as we're putting the book together or writing about that. Mm, it's a really good point. I mean, even doing the transcript for my interviews on this show, I'm aware sometimes that the text on the page does not reflect the emotion that we talked about. And it's so difficult, like as you're completely correct there, which is really interesting. One thing about taking photos and especially publishing photos is about photos of people. Now, could you talk a bit about that? Because people mm -hmm. might feel like, well, how can you take a photo of some Bolivian person in their village doing something religious and publish it in a book. So what are your thoughts around that? Well, I would just say that it's country dependent. First, in terms of the law, it depends on what country you are. Every country and community has a different law around it. But there are also ethical questions involved. And everyone that appears in this book 
I I spoke to, right? I talked to, I asked them, can I take pictures? I got their phone numbers and I got their names. I told them that I would send these photos to them. They asked me what I was doing and I was honest and open with them about everything. So this wasn't me kind of like going on a photo safari, snapping pictures and collecting trophies, so to speak. There was this kind of open communication between me and everyone I was shooting. But I, I do see how, you know, the, the, this could kind of approach some, I don't know, tricky gray areas in terms of ethics. Yeah. I mean, my brother's a photographer and he says there's a lot of discussion around what counts as sort of modern colonialism when it comes to taking photos in more sort of indigenous settings, I suppose. And language is difficult around this, but I love what you did there. I think that's actually a great way to do it. Although I think in most places, if somebody is out in public doing something in public, then there aren't any problems. <laughs> right, right. And But there's also this documentary aspect of it that is ultimately part of part of the conversation. And this gets wrapped into the ethics as well. But this idea of documenting the world, and I know that there is that kind of colonial language and undertone to that idea. But there's something interesting about kind of documenting this world before these traditions and these things disappear, right? And it's tricky, it's complicated, and it's a case by case thing. But if anyone is interested in doing this, I know there's like a lot of people that are interested in street photography, especially in the UK and the United States, if you're out in the public, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy there. But you need to be, I think, respectful and, and treat people with dignity. And if you're open and you're forthcoming and you're not trying to represent people in ways that might embarrass them or might get them into trouble, then I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you've got an absolute ton of material. You've got photos and <laughs> audio and text and just a whole load of stuff. So how did you wrestle that into submission to turn it into a book? Like, What was your editing process? Because that, I know how much work that is. I mean, it's even yeah. more work with images because, of course, with digital images, we take so many more than we right. would have done with normal film. And so you have a lot more to go through. So tell us about that process. Yeah, it was a long process. As I mentioned earlier, I've been working on this thing for a year, and it's not a very big book. I mean, the memoir, which was really difficult for me to get through because it's so personal, but that's only 7,000 words. You know, um, it was 15,000 words, and I trimmed it back to mm -hmm. 7,000, but that, that took a long time. The images, as you mentioned, I walked away with thousands of images, and I had to kind of whittle that down to hundreds of images and then whittle that down to tens of images. And that was, these are two separate but kind of related processes, right? The writing and then the photo aspect. This project is by far the most complicated project that I've ever done because of these two different parts of the project. In terms of the photos, I mean, that was quite difficult because I had to pull all of my images into the computer. And from the thousands, I had to just like look, literally look at every single image and make a decision. Yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. Going down several passes to like a, a long list and then a short list. And then when I had my short list of images, which is like 100, 200 images, I printed all of those out in, in these small like index card sized work prints, mm. you know, like a pack of cards, but my images and I would tap, take them, um, tape them to the wall. I would carry them with me, shuffle them around, and trying to think about which image, which set of images 
works best for the project or the idea or the concept of my book. And that idea, the concept of the book, ultimately was the North Star of my project. That was the thing that was guiding me and was telling me, accept, reject or keep. Mm. So I mean, what's the process for me? It was just like kind of getting honest with myself about what is this book about? What is the story here that I'm trying to tell? And then making a tough decision, which image or which part of the text, which part of the story further advances that narrative and that story. And if it doesn't, ax it, delete it, get rid of it. Yeah, that is so hard. And I, I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in this. I want to do a photo book or maybe more than one photo book. And it's so hard with images. I'm also like you. I mean, I have tens of thousands of photos from mm -hmm. various travels. And even to know what it is. I like that you've chosen one particular trip, whereas I'm really thinking about, for example, a Gothic cathedral book or memento mori type book. And so it'd be multiple trips with maybe different essays or I don't even know. But it, I, I, I like what you've done. But I also think like, that just sounds it's so much work, which is kind right. of crazy. So are but, you when as we're recording this, are you finished with your decision of what everything is? Like, is the book finished? The book is 99% done. Yeah, yeah. The, the book is finished. You know how it is. Like, there's mm -hmm. always like this thing in the back of my mind. Like, I'm thinking about taking out an image or two or rearranging them. But this project is done, which is to say it's done enough, right? Up until yeah, this point. That's what it has to be. <laughs> and we'll come to yeah. the deadline of a Kickstarter. But did you design it yourself then? Did you format yeah. it all yourself? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, and that's another kind of layer here of, of complication here because I'm putting everything, I'm designing everything in InDesign. Um, I'm doing the typeface design, the book design, all of that I'm doing myself. Of course, bringing in help as I need it in terms of formatting or kind of like double checking everything and editing and those types of things. But yeah, all the the heavy lifting I'm doing, you know, I, I would love to just like put something through Vellum and do the print. Thing for me, but this is such a strange, unusual project that those tools aren't cut out for, so to speak. I need to do it in design because that's the only way that I can do it, basically. Yeah, I agree. I, Vellum's not for this kind of book. Um, mm -hmm. That that's mm -hmm. not what what it is for. So I totally agree with you. So tell us a bit more about the physical product, the high quality hardback book, and some of the book design choices because I feel like, I mean, you've self-published books before and most listeners will we will have done basic paperbacks i mean i've done one special edition hardback but i i know we have to make a lot more decisions so tell us about this hardback product basically yeah so i guess the star of, of the kickstarter show the star of the show is this hardcover special edition kind of this executive size seven by ten inches i don't know what that would be in in a metric, but it's this nice size hardcover book with this kind of premium cloth covering to it. There's a silk screened, hand silk screened cover, right? The inside, the, the paper quality, it's going to be this fine matte art paper. It's going to be printed not digitally, but offset print uh, printed. So it's a little bit better quality than digital prints. I'm going to have these beautiful end papers. I'm going to have a map. It's going to be a premium product it's the, the the print run is is going to be quite low just because of the costs associated with it but i'm pulling out as many stops as i can to make this this truly beautiful object in and of itself 
based on its materials. And then hopefully, you know, the contents ma- match the container. Hopefully the, <laughs> the story and the be- and the images are as compelling as the materials and the materiality of the project as well. Yeah. And so how did you find the printer that you're using? Because I feel like many people are like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. But how do I find someone to work with? Yeah, just internet surgeon, uh, searching, really. And also, you would find like many of the kind of art books and the photo books. Now, if you look at the colophons and the part, the credit pages of these books, they'll reveal a lot of information about where the book was printed, who printed it, right? What typefaces were used, what kind of papers were used. Like there's so much interesting information in the back of the books. And so that was one of the source that, that I tapped in order to find the printers. I've sent emails all over the world to different manufacturers and suppliers trying to price out this book and try to find a fit. So that's yet another issue. You got to communicate with the printers and the binderies to, for them to send you samples and to get dummies, you know, book dummies. And there's a lot of moving parts here. And this process started for me in September 2022 when I came back, when I knew I had something that I wanted to make. So mm-hmm. sending those emails out as early as possible. That's kind of what I had to do. And that's what I recommend everyone does to produce a book like this. Yeah. I mean, and then you have to do some test printing. Like I've actually got right here, I've got the cover of Writing the Shadow, which is the next book I'll be putting out. And I'm doing gold foil on the Kickstarter hardback. I've never done gold foil before. So I actually have here a sample. Yeah. Yeah, I know a sample of the gold foil on the cover. And it's awesome because it like reflects the sun and everything. But in order to do a gold foil on the cover, you have to send separate print files. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so this is a test, a test print. I haven't even finished the book yet as we're recording. So, but yeah, I mean, like you said, when you're doing a print product or a physical product of any kind, you have to do these kind of samples. And we're just really not used to doing that, are we? With digital or like right. even basic With, print on demand we kind of order one after it's done <laughs> right just to make sure everything looks good but even i know i do and i'm sure many people do this too like even if you do the pod print books like you always i, I don't know for me i like i always want to get an early copy just uh, mm. a test copy a proof just to, to make sure that everything is dialed in and there aren't any kind of surprises in, in the printing i'm sure like you, like you've done this enough. <laughs> you don't necessarily need to do that verification. But a, on a book project like the one that you're working on again, and I'm sure with your pilgrimage book and, and this book that I'm working on, like you, you can't, you know, overlook that part of the process. You need to do that, right? There are mm. too many moving parts. The stakes are way too high. You need to have that proof copy or that dummy or that sample come in. Yeah. And I feel like this is all about us becoming better publishers. Like we spend a lot of time on the craft side and the marketing side, which we'll talk about, but this is about being a better publisher and putting out a beautiful print book. And well, they have something cool, you know, Mm. something beautiful, something cool, something that feels good in the hands, something that's this is like this amazing material thing. Right. And I'm sure we can do that print on demand, but this is raising the stakes. This is making, as you mentioned, a beautiful object. And that is cool, right? We mm. that we have within our reach the capabilities of doing those things. Yeah, it is cool. All right. So tell us yeah. why Kickstarter for this project and what are have been the challenges, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with it. Oh, there's so many. But yeah, why Kickstarter? Uh well, well f- frankly, you know, the print on demand 
industry, I guess, if you want to call it. It's not really cut out to to be able to produce a book of of this quality, right? Mm. Um, you know, offset printed, this bespoke fabric on the hardcover, this matte art paper, all of these kind of nuances, you don't really have that sort of fe- flexibility with print-on-demand companies. Now, it's getting there, it's approaching that, right? With Book Vault, they have a lot of interesting options, many of which aren't available in the U.S., I might add, but it's approaching that, but it's not quite there yet in terms of what I want to do. And the only route that I can do, go is to produce this myself. And to produce a book like this myself is expensive, and I don't have that money. I'm a teacher. I'm mm. poor, right? <laughs> so I need to help. I need crowdfunding and Kickstarter to help offset those expenses or help publish and produce this beautiful object according to the vision. So that's kind of why Kickstarter is the only option for me that's one of the benefits but that's also one of the challenges too it's like to be to be beholden to only one publishing path or one vision that's a struggle that's something that's that's been bothering me i guess but yeah the challenges yeah what are the challenges of kickstarter it's a a lot more difficult to do this launch right and to set a launch date and then to do all of the marketing stuff in service of that launch date there's high pressure, high stakes to meet your goal and to to meet all the stretch goals if if you have them. And of course, when we get to the end of the Kickstarter, if it's successful, then we have to fulfill all the promises that we made. So there are so many challenges from design to marketing to inventory to setup to calculating the costs and doing the shipping, getting everything right and dialed in. You know, this is not for the for the week, right? This is, this is <laughs> yeah, it is a challenge for, for sure. And yeah, again, you know it, how it is. Oh, I do, I do, and I'm about to do it again. So, I mean, I, I do feel like it's worthwhile because, like you said, you had a vision of this project, and you can't achieve that vision without doing it in some way. I mean, you have to get the funding somehow. I mean, you could have, for example, you could have, I don't know whether you did actually pitch this to a traditional publisher. Did you even consider that? Not, not in the, no, no, I did not. This is kind of a hybrid project. This is a hybrid book. There are photo book publishers out there and there are kind of traditional memoir publishers out there, right? And to put those together, it's just such a weird thing, right? This hybrid monster beast that I know no one would touch, right? To produce it the way that I want to do it. it yeah. Not only is, is everything weird on the inside, but it's like, okay, what is the vision to produce this high quality book? You know, what do the profits look like for a book publisher for a book like this? You know, yeah, those numbers it's, it's don't an look unknown. Good. Yeah. Right. Right. It's too risky. Yeah. It's, I mean, I feel the same way about pilgrimage. It's half memoir, half travel book with some photos and like you say it doesn't (laughs) necessarily fit also I feel like many memoir writers now choose to self-publish because it's so personal and if you license the rights to your own very personal writing and it doesn't go the way you want it to that can be pretty hardcore you know difficult so yeah there's pros and cons with doing a kickstarter but tell us because you've mentioned this wonderful hardback edition but i was the one who i think who prompted you i was like hey uh what about the fact that there's an international market out there and maybe not everyone in fact i don't even think you're selling it in every country in the world right so talk about the various other levels that you added to the project okay so it, it i am selling it 
globally. I'm just not setting up the shipping for every country yet, just because, I mean, that's another challenge with Kickstarter. You need to figure out shipping stuff. And for me to dial in shipping for 200 countries would be yeah, at this crazy. stage, just, yeah, crazy. <laughs> but yeah, you looked at my preview page and you're like, hey, what about some other options? And thanks to you, I've included an audiobook version, an ebook, and an audiobook version, um, a cheaper paperback book. That's leveraging the POD route that we spoke about. This With is black and white be, photos. Mm. Right. Black and white. Yeah. I would say an inexpensive reader copy, right? If you just want to like read the story and you're not like, you know, that crazy about having this premium kind of tactile book in your hand, the paperback book is the route to go down. And not only are these kind of set up to be delivered digitally, except for the paperback, right? The ebook and the audiobook, but they're a lot cheaper. A lot, of, mm. lot more affordable than the premium limited edition hardback. So there are multiple price points, which I think it's a good Kickstarter strategy, multiple price points and yeah, multiple options for people to get involved and to help support the larger vision of having this awesome, beautiful book. Yeah, I think that's great because some people, like you've mentioned the memoir section, which you made well, I know it, I mean, it's going to be personal. Um, some -hmm. people are going to be like, yeah, I want to listen. Are you going to narrate that? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to me, that's almost a completely different product to a photo art book. (laughs) Yeah. I I would just say here that the book has a 7,000 word personal, very personal travel memoir, right? It's not just about me. It's also kind of describing and kind of bringing you to this remote part of the Andes. Mm. There's these 50 or so beautiful images, I, I think, of the people and the pilgrims and the environment and the landscapes of this remote region. There's a, an afterword written by Pico Iyer in the book. And there's a printed dialogue that I had with an, an award-winning British photographer, someone by the name of Alice Tomlinson, who's produced beautiful photographic books on her own. So there's a lot of stuff packed into this book, but the audiobook version is just going to be the memoir section, me reading that memoir only. It's not mm. going to include the images because it's an MP3, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think this is the way with the Kickstarter. And I mean, as we record this, you don't know what people are going to buy. I think it's fascinating to see at the end what, you know, I mean, you might sell... You, a lot more volume of say ebooks but you might still make more money on the big print books so it's a really interesting project for figuring out the different things that people actually want to buy so maybe i'll have to give people an update yeah, <laughs> well they can yeah. come to your blog right and and you'll right. probably do an after sure. campaign thing about it and i must say i've been kind of poking around your pilgrimage campaign to see mm. the rewards and how many contributors they are just to get a sense of What might be the Goldilocks area in terms of rewards and pricing and just trying to figure out all of those moving parts? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, the point of this Kickstarter is to produce this beautiful book. So I need to make that math work. Mm -hmm. So every project is going to be different. But I've been looking at your campaign, other people's campaigns, seeing if there's any kind of Goldilocks area in terms of volume of contributors, of backers, but also what price point is that at? Yeah, it makes sense. it's tough. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really math. tough to figure We're it not out. Good at math. 
<laughs> Give me words, not math, okay? Yeah, exactly. I do think the shipping is the biggest thing that can definitely bankrupt you. So that's the thing to get right for sure with these heavy books. Before we finish, we're almost out of time, but just also tell us a bit more about the marketing because again, most authors are marketing after a book has come out, but with Kickstarter, we're marketing beforehand. So how have you been doing this? Well, I've sent an email to my friend Joanna Penn at the Creative <laughs> Print, and no, in all seriousness, like just like this, right? Sending email pitches to podcasts, sending emails to friends and bloggers and people who have newsletters, sending emails to media contacts, right? Posting stuff on my own newsletters and on social media. There's just so many kind of people to contact and so many things to to dial in here in terms of the marketing. If I'm honest, it's for me probably the hardest part of this all because I, I guess this is a common sentiment among writers that the marketing and the promotional thing is it's the one that feels the weirdest to, to do, you know? Mm. And so like I'm I'm currently kind of struggling with that, but I, I just need to suck it up and send these emails out. So yeah, podcasters, newsletters, bloggers, anyone just begging people to help me spread the word, basically. I've been also uh, reaching out to some of my writer friends, and I've been asking them to, if they read the book and like the book, to to offer me like blurbs and endorsements. And so those have been coming in, which is nice to have. And I don't know if I'm going to do this yet, but Kickstarter allows you to place a Facebook pixel and kind of like the Google Analytics stuff. So I'm thinking whether or not I will dive into like Facebook ads for promotions, but I don't have money and the prospect of spending money <laughs> is, <laughs> is, time. is a little scary. Remember, yeah. it takes mm-hmm. time. Um, mm-hmm. I did notice you put a video, was it on Instagram? Oh yeah, yesterday, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you are using those images, which I think is really good. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, you have your podcast, I think mm-hmm. putting out chapters of the audiobook during the campaign is definitely worked for me and I'll be doing that again as well. Because I saw you did that on SoundCloud, right? You Oh, I did one right? I, yeah, I did a sample on SoundCloud for the campaign itself, but I also on this podcast and on my books and mm. travel podcast, I had chapters of the po- of the audiobook that went out to the audience. Because there's lots of people listening to this right now who do not subscribe to my email list and who don't follow me on social media and don't follow you on social media. And so a lot of people listening, this is the way they hear about what we're doing. So make sure you tap into your audio audience as well. Okay. Okay. Another another good idea. <laughs> another good <laughs> yeah. al- don't have all this time, Joe. But yeah, yeah, definitely. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Well, especially because um, so. you've already, re- or you will have already recorded it. So right. it's like, look, here's a chapter. And But yeah, the call to action stuff, dur- even during the campaign as well, because of course, pre-campaign, we're, we're sending people to the pre-launch page. And then during the campaign, we want people to actually sign up. So what what do you think is was the single most important promotional marketing thing that you did for pilgrimage? I, I, that I can't say what one thing was, to be honest. I mean, I do think that having the pre-launch page up beforehand and getting as many people to sign up as possible is mm-hmm. is really important because what happens when you click that button is Kickstarter tells everyone on that list that the campaign's there. And that's the point where if you have a a reasonable goal and you exceed that goal quickly, so I exceeded it within like 
10 minutes or something ridiculous because I put such a low number on, <laughs> then that sort of that velocity, I got that books we love thing within 24 hours because of the velocity of the campaign. Mm-hmm. I think doing as much as possible before it starts to get people to sign up is really important. And then it's literally doing something every day or let's say every two days because you and I are hardly <laughs> marketing sort of fans <laughs> but every two days in the campaign period putting something out but you have to plan that beforehand because it's knackering mm-hmm. so I essentially had a little spreadsheet and most of it I scheduled so I'd already recorded some videos I scheduled social media stuff and and email you have to email more than once Jeremy <laughs> You have to email (laughs) multiple times. (laughs) Taking notes here. Yeah. And I mean, we hate that, right? I hate doing Mm. that. But Mm. it's like, well, look, if you only have a two-week campaign, you have to do as much as you can. Otherwise, then what happens? It's finished. And people are like, oh, well, I only just heard about this. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) So, yeah, it is tough. But also, I, I almost feel like we're so used to marketing a book once it's out. There's an emotional difference between marketing something that's already out and marketing something that people can't even see yet. Right. Right. And there's no social proof as in there's no reviews on it or all of that kind of thing. But then I also think that's part of the joy of Kickstarter is funding, helping fund all these weird projects. So, yeah, you do. But you definitely I know you're busy with the semester and everything. But those the weeks of the campaign that you do have to put in quite a lot of marketing effort then, too. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. That's going to be helpful for me in mm. these next uh, in these next days. Mm, and just so people know, I did a an episode back in, I guess it would have been March or something like that, which was my lessons learned from the Kickstarter. So people might find that useful. I'll link to that in the show notes because more and more authors are doing this. And again, that benefits us all. I mean, but selfishly having you on a couple of weeks before my Kickstarter goes out right. means that I get a chance to talk about mine. So we have more of an ecosystem of these beautiful print products uh, doing, you know, talking about each other's products and each other's campaigns. So, so yeah, so I guess all that remains is to tell people where they can find you and the Kickstarter and everything else you do online. Well, the, the main place is my homepage, my website, which is jeremybassetti.com. That's J E R E M Y B as in boy, A S E T I.com. And if you go to jeremybassetti.com forward slash skull, as it's spelled, that'll take you directly to the Kickstarter campaign page. But I also have the podcast, Travel Writing World, and you can check some of that stuff out at travelwritingworld.com, where I also have this uh, 40-page guide to writing travel books, which is absolutely free. You can sign up to receive that. And I have newsletters and just everything at jeremybassetti.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Jeremy. That was great. Thank you, Joe. So I hope you found the interview with Jeremy useful, especially if you're considering a photo book or a higher quality print product. And of course, links in the show notes if you want to check out Jeremy's Kickstarter. Next week, I'm talking to Jesse Quack about adapting to sudden change. And it is a really interesting discussion. So I know you're going to find it fascinating. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. 
You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.